Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Alan Zabel, Research Director with Public Citizen, who talks about his group's new report titled Big Oil's Wartime Bonus and the call by some in Congress to impose a windfall profits tax on oil and gas companies. Climate activist Donna Shaughnessy, who explains why she and others were arrested in a protest blockading a West Virginia coal-fired power plant with links to Senator Joe Manchin's family business. And Allison Skinner-Dokino, assistant professor of behavioral and brain sciences at the University of Georgia, who discusses her recent study that found COVID racial disparities made many white U.S. residents less supportive of public health measures. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Mass protests have engulfed the island nation of Sri Lanka as it suffers through a major economic crisis. During a five-day state of emergency, protesters gathered outside the house of President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, demanding he resign and return to his home in California. There, Rajapaksa faces civil charges relating to human rights violations he allegedly committed during Sri Lanka's brutal civil war against the Tamil Tigers. Thus far, Rajapaksa has refused to resign as massive numbers of protesters take to the streets and clash with police. The crisis was triggered by rapid inflation and falling currency reserves that has resulted in shortages of key imports of food, fuel, and medicine. In the capital city of Colombo, Residents endure 13-hour power blackouts and high prices for cooking gas. With inflation now over 18 percent, the Central Bank of Sri Lanka is doubling interest rates, and the finance minister has called for restructuring the debt and negotiations with the International Monetary Fund and the Asian Development Bank. Although President Rajapaksa invited opposition party members to join his cabinet, none took up the offer. Opposition leaders and many of the president's own allies are now calling for the formation of an interim government to find a solution to Sri Lanka's economic crisis. The future of the independent judiciary in Guatemala is in jeopardy as prominent anti-corruption judge Erica Ifan quit her job and fled the country. A 20-year veteran of the judiciary, Judge Ifan investigated corruption charges involving Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate for financing his 2019 campaign with more than $2 million in bribes from powerful construction companies. Judge Ifan was praised by the Biden administration for her work strengthening an independent judiciary, but she faced a government inquiry, which charged her with abusing her authority in prosecuting corruption. When the Guatemalan Supreme Court stripped her of immunity and made her vulnerable to detention, she moved to the U.S., fearing for her life. According to the Christian Science Monitor, Ifan is the 15th high-profile judge or prosecutor to flee Guatemala in the last year. The situation illustrates Washington's declining influence in the region. 
Corey Welch, Advocacy Director for the Guatemala Human Rights Commission, proposes that Washington might oppose international monetary fund loans to the Guatemalan government or even seek Guatemala's suspension from the Central American Free Trade Agreement. Newly elected Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, who proclaimed himself a change agent as the city's second youngest mayor, was surprised by a January snowstorm. Cleveland has been plagued by poor public services. Unplowed snow prevented many residents from getting to work or medical appointments. But Bibb was ready for the second big snowstorm by creating an online snowplow tracker to show residents which streets were passable and where plows were headed next. Bibb, an African-American, ran as an Obama-style change agent but declined the progressive label. Still, he was the only candidate for mayor who supported the creation of a new oversight commission for the Cleveland Police Department. It was in Cleveland that 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot by police after he was seen carrying a toy gun in a park in 2014. Bibb has worked to boost COVID vaccination rates in communities of color and is working with the prestigious Cleveland Clinic to expand the city's campaign to address the scourge of lead poisoning and the lack of health care access for the city's poorest residents. Whether Bibb is a progressive remains unknown, but what he's offering to Clevelanders amounts to a radical change in how their government treats them. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has resulted in a humanitarian catastrophe, with tens of thousands likely killed, millions of external and internal war refugees, and charges of ghastly war crimes. Another effect of Vladimir Putin's war, now in its second month, has been skyrocketing gas and oil prices worldwide, linked with sanctions targeting Russia's fossil fuel industry. Now a new report titled Big Oil's Wartime Bonus provides analysis of how major oil companies are profiteering off the war in Ukraine while blaming U.S. environmental regulations and pushing for more government permits, allowing for increased drilling for fossil fuels. The research report was a joint project of Public Citizen, Friends of the Earth, and Bailout Watch. Your reporter spoke with Alan Zabel, Research Director with Public Citizen, who summarizes the findings of the Big Oil's wartime bonus report and discusses the call by some in Congress to impose a windfall profits tax on oil and gas companies accused of wartime profiteering. The industry, for the past year, their lobbyists in, in, in D.C. Have been, have been blaming Biden and saying because Biden um, stopped the Keystone Pipeline and Biden put a pause on, on drilling on, on federal lands and, you know, had kind of criticized the oil industry in the campaign, they decided to kind of pin rising, I don't even want to say high, but like rising gas prices on Biden. And then after Russia invaded Ukraine, prices of course, went way up, um, you know, because it's all determined by speculators, you know, oil traders, what really determines crude oil prices. 
you know, the oil lobby in, in D.C., the American Petroleum Institute and other trade groups, maybe a day or two before Russia invaded, or they, they were like ready with these talking points um, right on the dot, like the, the, that it's all Biden's fault. You know, we need to we need to ramp up leasing. We need to ramp up offshore drilling. Uh, we need to build the Keystone Pipeline, blah, 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 blah. And it was all nonsense. Very, those are very, very long-term things that would take six months, ten months, a year. I mean, Keystone Pipeline, years to impact um, oil supply. And, and, you know, our contention with Keystone is that it, it would make prices even higher. But, but it, the point being is that they were trying to blame Biden for everything. It really made no sense. You know, they were very aggressive at it, right? And um, so we wanted to put out this report to kind of counter that that argument and point out that over the past year, as the oil industry's fortunes have turned around, really because the economy got better and people started driving again, right? Uh, they started um, buying back their stock, basically taking stock and 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 using corporate funds to to retire it, which makes the existing shareholders' holdings worth more, um, and increasing dividends. So we uh, we looked at 20 um, U.S. oil companies and found that over this 12-month period, they bought back about $46 billion in stock. More than half of the companies boosted their, their dividends, and some of them by really huge amounts. Um, of the 11 companies raising their dividends, Nine were increases of more than 15%, and four were increases of more than 40%. And they've been um, using a, a scheme called variable dividends in addition to kind of direct windfall profits uh, immediately into shareholder hands um, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, we calculated um, an initial $3 billion in windfall dividends. So um, they're really raking in, in the profits right now um, with oil, you know, as we all know, gasoline, somewhere in the, in the low $4 a gallon, I think it is right now, and, and uh, crude oil is about 95 or so. You know, it's hurting consumers, and they are profiting tremendously. I mean, it's been a record year for profits of the uh, the big oil giants, you know, Chevron, Exxon, BP, Shell, the majors, as well as the, you know, smaller independent companies that are just kind of U.S. focused rather than international. But that's what we really wanted to highlight, you know, kind of push back on the argument that, that this is all Biden's fault. They, you know, you have Putin to blame for high gas prices, and you also have the uh, the oil company's own corporate greed and, and uh, extraordinary profits this past year. Well, Alan, some some Democrats in Congress are advocating the imposition of a windfall profits tax on big oil. And I'm wondering, what are the chances are that uh, something like that could pass in the House and Senate? And what do we hear from the White House, from Joe Biden and his administration? So we at Public Citizen, we were very supportive of uh, th- this idea of windfall profits tax. Senator Whitehouse in, in uh, Rhode Island is the main sponsor. I would say, you know, it's 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 hard to, I mean, given what a mess uh, um, Congress is these days, right? It's hard to predict um, that anything is going to get through. But I think this is a fight worth fighting. I mean, I, I haven't heard from the, much from the White House about it um, from the Biden administration, but yeah, you know, I would hope that they would be, um, you know full-on supportive of it. Right. Well, 
How does a windfall profits tax work? And I know there are a couple of different versions of the House and the Senate version, as you mentioned. Well, under the Senate version, um, you know, oil companies that produce or import at least 300,000 barrels of oil a day um, would pay um, uh, 50% of the difference between uh, the current oil price and the, the average price um, pre-pandemic. So they have it structured as a quarterly tax that would apply to um, domestic and imported uh, barrels of oil. And the really important part of this is, is, is this would be re- returned to you and me, right? This would go to ordinary consumers in the, in the form of a rebate and um, be kept at uh, single uh, households earning more than uh, 75000 and joint households capped at 150000 So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a good idea. Um, it, would, it would raise about $45 billion a year, and it would be rebated to consumers. I mean, I, I think that, that's, that's worth doing. We really have not heard from um, uh, the Biden administration on it, and, and um, I, w- I would hope that they would, they would sign on and, and really push it hard. That was Alan Zabel, Research Director with Public Citizen. Find a link to the new report titled Big Oil's Wartime Bonus by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On April 9th, a group called West Virginia Rising organized a blockade of a power plant that buys coalways from a business owned by Senator Joe Manchin and his family, from which he earns half a million dollars a year. At the same time, Manchin has been blocking any congressional action on the climate crisis and has been calling for more fossil fuel development from his powerful perch as chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Scores of climate activists gathered outside the plant gates near the small town of Grant, while a dozen protesters who locked down at the gates were almost immediately arrested and charged with trespassing. Protest organizers were joined by members of the Poor People's Campaign and its co-chairs, Reverend William Barber, and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. The campaign has targeted Manchin for many of his positions that hurt his own constituents in West Virginia, one of the poorest states in the country. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Donna Shaughnessy, one of the climate activists arrested. Here she talks about the reasons for risking arrest and what she hopes the protest action will accomplish. I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, so we're um, downwind from the Granttown plant in West Virginia. Um, so I know that that's burning really bad stuff called Dob. And uh, so it's heading our way. Plus we all breathe the same air. So that's something that it's really important to me to save the planet as much as we can. And heaven knows um, Joe Manchin has done more than his fair share to undercut the whole climate curing kinds of things so was it operating while you were there i mean what what was was it belching smoke or what was that like yes definitely was um and also lots of there sort of alarm sounds going off a lot at first we thought it was just for us but apparently that's just going on all the time really loud blasting kind of noises and so that's a problem for the neighbors of course too because it's a, a loud noise to be listening to on a regular basis do you know what, what that was about? Usually you don't hear coal plants doing that. 
Well, it's not actually a coal plant because it's bur it's a it's a plant that's burning um, you know leftover coal residue and just creating electricity. I understand that GOB G O B actually stands for something. Yeah, garbage of bituminous. So it's what's ever left over from burning bituminous coal. It's got a little energy value, um, but it's a really expensive fuel, and um, it burns doesn't burn cleanly at all. It's a really dirty. It, you know, coal is dirty. This stuff is even dirtier, is my understanding. I was reading the uh, article in the local paper in the the Charleston Gazette, Charleston, West Virginia paper. There is actually a little thing added at the top saying this has been updated to show that it's not against the law for any member of Congress to profit from their investments. It's legal. There's no question that it's legal, but um, it's just morally reprehensible. So, and so, and he's not only that, but a he's charging more for the electricity and asking to have the rates increased so he can charge more to his constituents, and he's poisoning their air. So it's a it's a lose lose for the people of West Virginia and a and a win for, for Joe Manchin. What did you hope to accomplish by getting arrested there? Uh, mostly to you know call attention to what was going on and hopefully um, slow things down enough that we could get more media attention there. We weren't intending wasn't any point in really blocking the entrance, although we did that um, because really only 10 people worked there and we didn't see anybody go try to go in and out. I know that, you know, those of us who were locked down to each other were sort of planning on staying for a really long time. We had lots of layers on. Um, and so we were disappointed not to be be there and, and we had our all our plans intact, but they, they were completely wiped out. Although I have to say, sitting around for five or six hours in the snow but also, I'm, I'm sort of glad we didn't have to do that. But I was ready to do it if it was all for. I do know that there were a lot of people from West Virginia, and we really tried at this rally to put them in the forefront. And there were some amazing speeches that I was able to watch from people who've been impacted by the work that Joe Manchin has done and, and the, the pain he's caused people, former coal miners and people who've had opiate issues in their family and people who, who have just gotten ill from the water and the air and how they haven't been able to do anything about that. So uh, it was really great to hear hear them speak and um, understand just how much pain he's causing his constituents. Um, and certainly I know one of my fellow arrestees was in a, a cop car with a cop who said, boy, you guys are really brave. And and I think you're doing the right thing. So we do know that there are other West Virginians who who would be with us, not just the ones at the rally, but the people working, working for, for the cops. So that was reassuring to hear. And we were trying to be clear about we're doing this for your children and your grandchildren you know, as much as ours. So hopefully that message gets through. Um, and people came from all over the place. I mean, one woman who's a Zen priest flew in from Portland, Oregon to join us being locked down. And so, but we had people from Chicago and Pittsburgh and New York. Everybody is feeling how important this is and how we really need to get the word out. So um, I'm glad to see as many people excited about this and people ranged, you know, in age from people in their twenties to people in their eighties. And so we're all pretty united in thinking that we need to try to save them planet that we love. That was climate activist Donna Shaughnessy, who was arrested at the Coal Baron blockade in West Virginia. Read more about the protest in the coal-fired power plant that buys coal waste from a company owned by Joe Manchin's family by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
Throughout the course of the coronavirus pandemic, a vocal minority of Americans have resisted and often protested against public health measures designed to minimize the spread of COVID-19, the severe illness the virus often causes that overcrowds hospitals and can lead to death. These protests have sometimes led to violent attacks on people wearing masks, nurses, doctors, and health officials. At the same time, the Trump administration and Republican politicians were attempting to politically weaponize the pandemic by opposing lockdowns, vaccination campaigns, and mask mandates, it was clear that COVID-19 disproportionately impacted the health of African Americans and the nation's Hispanic population. Now, a new study, conducted by psychologists at the University of Georgia, has concluded that white Americans were more likely to ignore safety precautions, such as wearing a mask and social distancing, when they believed that the virus was not a white people problem. Your reporter spoke with Allison Skinner-Dokino, assistant professor of behavioral and brain sciences at the University of Georgia, who discusses the study she co-authored, titled, Highlighting COVID-19 Racial Disparities Can Reduce Support for Safety Precautions Among White U.S. Residents. I am a researcher that studies prejudice and racism and how our attitudes are shaped by our social environments, but also how our attitudes feed back to sort of reinforce bias systems and structures. And so uh, when I saw the news about racial disparities, I was really concerned. I shared a couple articles. Um, but then a friend of mine sort of pointed out to me, he, he was just sort of felt a little bit concerned. He, he was saying, I don't know if you should be sharing things like that. I don't know if it's a good idea. And it just got me thinking about, from a psychological perspective, what is the impact of telling a predominantly white public about racial disparities and really highlighting them and um, and focusing on them? And thinking about it from that perspective, I started to feel pretty concerned that it could be backfiring, that essentially it might be reducing concern about COVID-19 um, among white people and who, you know, disproportionately have the power to make, um, you know, public policy, health policy decisions, but also, as you were mentioning, you know, going out and protesting and doing these sort of things. So um, it was really sort of in anticipation that that could be coming once we thought about it from a psychological perspective, just knowing what we know about about human behavior and cognition. In your surveys, when you examined the, the kind of psychological process that was going on in terms of people's attitudes towards public health measures that were being taken to protect the wider society, and especially those more vulnerable to the coronavirus, was there a direct connection between people's racial attitudes, their racism or a belief in white supremacy, et cetera, and their attitudes about public health? So there, there have been some other similar studies to ours, and they have found specific links with uh, racial biases, with anti-Black attitudes. The unique thing that's sort of different with our study, and I think in part we were able to do that because we had pretty large samples of participants, is that we found these patterns were happening uh, in general. And even when we accounted for 
political orientation. So even when we accounted for how liberal or conservative our participants were, we still were seeing these patterns. Um, so, so that the political orientation predicted attitudes toward COVID-19 for sure. But even when we accounted for those attitudes, we still saw that awareness of racial disparities was related to support for safety precautions and fear of COVID-19. So we were still seeing these relations even when we accounted for that, um, which sort of suggests it being to some extent a broader phenomenon that cannot just be explained by political orientation. Professor Darquino, I did want to ask you, in terms of future pandemics and future health crises where there is a racial disparity that can be scientifically proven, in the future, how would you change the delivery of that message to reduce the kind of resistance to public health measures to protect the wider society that we saw during this COVID pandemic? Yeah, I feel like that's a really important question and not just specific to pandemics either, because I think there are tons of different issues that we face with regard to health, but also if we think about um, the impacts of climate change and, and lots of different areas, there are racial disparities and they are they do get talked about in the media and it could be influencing attitudes. So I think doing more research in this area to really investigate how can we talk about this most effectively and prevent this kind of backfiring effect. Um, so first of all, I just want to say I think more research is really critically needed here. But based on what we know and other research that I have done in my lab, my best recommendations are that we provide greater education about how disparities are connected to the systemically racist structures of society. So recognizing historically how we have gotten to this point, but also how so many things are interconnected to really sort of highlight how we got to where we are, but also pointing out the injustice of the situation. So not just pointing out those structures, but also highlighting how they are unjust and unfair and need to be corrected and fixed. So I think sort of bringing those pieces into this discussion might be really critical. That was Allison skinner Dokino, Assistant Professor of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at the University of Georgia's Department of Psychology. Find a link to the study she co-authored, titled Highlighting COVID-19 Racial Disparities Can Reduce Support for Safety Precautions Among White U.S. Residents, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. 
There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.